Show me the money. This is the MoneyWeb Be a Better Investor podcast. Picking the brains of professional investors on their investment strategies, successes, and mistakes. Your host, Rake Fanica. Welcome to this week's edition of the Be A Better Investor podcast. My name is Raik van Niekerk and in this podcast series I speak to leading professional investors and business leaders about investment and we also take a peek into their personal investment approaches and portfolios. We try to understand how they analyze investment opportunities, what companies and assets they invest in and whether they have more hits than misses. The idea is to identify a few golden nuggets of wisdom to help amateur retail investors to become better investors. My guest today is Craig Pfeiffer. He's the Chief Investment Strategist at Sassfin Wealth. Now, he had a a very interesting investment journey. He was the Chief Investment Strategist at Sassfin in the early 2000s. He was in this role for around seven years. Then he moved to EPSA Stockbrokers for around 16 years, and then he moved back to Sassfin and uh, assumed his old role as the Chief Investment Strategist. Craig, thank you so much for your time today. It's an interesting investment journey. Why did you return to Sassfin? Uh, you know, many people won't return to a company they've worked for before, especially after you've been at EPSA for 16 years. Well, I think when I left Sassfin in the in the early days, in, uh, in 2007, it was more about just getting a broader exposure. I think in those days, you sort of felt like you'd done it all. You, you were doing a lot of repetitive stuff every month. You wanted to uh, broaden your horizons, or I wanted to broaden my horizons. And uh, you get maybe the imagery of you think you're a big fish in a small pond, and now you want to see what you can do in a, in a bigger pond. So I went out to EPSA. Yeah, it was a good 15-odd uh, years there. The company also morphed. Um, I joined the, uh, as the head of the private client asset management business, which eventually over time merged with the stockbroking business. Uh, there were kind of a lot of similarities in the back office and, and even in the front office. Um, so that's why we, we joined those two companies together. And uh, yes, it was, it's just the, the investment game, wherever you are, it never gets any easier, but it's, uh, it's exciting. And uh, I think I just wanted to, going to APSA was to, to see how I could fare myself in, in a big environment. It never gets easier. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, but let's go back. Where did you grow up and when were you first exposed to the investment world? Uh, go back. I was actually, um, my parents, uh, when I was born, lived in Louis Buerta Avenue, um, overlooking St. John's uh, in those days in a, in a block of flats. I still drive past there sometimes when I'm brave uh, and see where we used to live. Now you just need to watch out <laughs> for those taxis. Yes. But eventually, long story short, I ended up um, in Alberton just before my ninth birthday. And I've been in Alberton ever since. Always a long journey in the mornings or whenever into into the office in Santon. Invariably, I've worked in Santon. Uh, so the traffic's uh, never great. So COVID was a, was a good experience from that point of view because I didn't have all of that travel. Uh, and uh, you sort of get used to having more time on your hands to... Um, to to do what you're supposed to be doing yeah, rather be than sitting in the traffic. Yeah. <laughs> but even this week, uh, going back one afternoon, that took me two hours to get home, you know, on a bad day with the rain and the load shedding and the robots. So, uh, yeah, I've been in Alberton uh, virtually all my life, um, coming up for f- to be 57. So uh, it was just before my ninth birthday. 
There was uh, a time when we looked to move closer. We spent about a year looking at houses uh, closer to Santon and eventually moved, uh, you know, a kilometer away from our, <laughs> from our old house. Yeah. And the investment world, when were you first exposed to it and when did it start to really tickle your fancy? Um, I think I had an interest in it, uh, you know, very early on. Uh, when I was at Varsity, I was aware of the financial markets, um, this is uh, sort of um, mid-80s. You studied econo- economics. Uh, I first did a BSc in computer science. That was uh, what I did at, at WITS. Uh, I think uh, to this day that I did the wrong degree initially. Um, once at that age, I was 17 when I went to varsity, 17 and a half. And uh, you're not quite sure. You don't always get the right guidance. And I ended up, I just knew I wanted to be in computers at that stage. Uh, when I was at school, I had a little ZX80 computer. It was a little membranous keyboard. It had 1K of memory and you could get a little 16K add-on in the I back. I remember those. I'm also <laughs> giving my age away. And uh, yeah, so it was all about computers. But what I should have done was probably go into business information systems on the on the financial side because I sort of a BCom in that space because that was probably marry my two kind of loves at the time or my two interests, let's say, at that point in time. But I did the computer science degree. I looked around. I did my military service, ended up doing 18 months. It was just being phased out then. And I remember I got two job offers after all my interviews. The one was for, I'll tell you the numbers, was for 2,200 rand at the stockbroker. And the other was at 2,800 rand at uh, Unilever. There was a massive difference in, in, in the money. Uh, but I chose to go to the stockbroker because that's where I, um, I was more interested. And I thought that's where I want to have my you know, career. But in my varsity days, uh, my first little foray into, into the markets, I think, was buying Escort shares. Was that the very first uh, share you invested that in? That was the very first share uh, I got. I uh, got to experience uh, you know, Black October and, and things don't always go up. <laughs> Uh, in a straight line or even up. When I joined um, the stockbroking business, I uh, my first share that I bought was McAdams Bakery Supplies. I don't know why, it just, um, there was nothing about valuations or anything, I didn't know anything. I was doing a BCom part-time at, at that point in time. So it was one of those things, I don't know, maybe just seemed sexy and, and uh, well, as far as bakery supplies go. Did, did you make money on ESCO? I did in the end um, because they unbundled. And they also had a lot of rights issues or splits, and, and I stayed with it the whole time. Uh, you've got Kumba out of it and um, Ixaro. Ixaro, yes. Um, and then your Mittal shares, which those just went south after that. Do you still own it? I still hold all of them, to be fair. But the net effect would be a, a big positive because the net effect, uh, yeah. Ixaro and Kumba is performed uh, phenomenally at times. At times, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, th- I think that probably comes down to my strategy or maybe it's just neglect sometimes, but it's to to try and buy good shares and keep them for the long term. You know, just hold on. Fire and forget. Yeah. And uh, and that works probably with 90% of the, of the shares, but you have to continually look at them um, as well and monitor them. You don't necessarily have to trade them, but I think to you do your homework, you buy the shares, and you just stick them away, generally. Let, let's talk about that do your homework. Uh, so you were a very young, excited individual entering the stock market or stockbroking business. How did you do your homework? Because I would assume it's totally different to the way you do it today. Yes, in those days, I think it took a lot of guidance from 
from my mentors in the business, um, you know, those people that I reported to or worked with in, in the business. And uh, I like to think that, uh, you know, one of them was, uh, was an angel on my left shoulder. There were two of them. And the other was a little bit of a devil on the right shoulder. And um, the angel would tell me, you know, buy good shares and keep them. Don't trade in and out all day. The other one on the other shoulder would say, buy those gold shares in the morning, sell them in the afternoon. And the angel on my shoulder, you know, pulled me aside one day and said, you know, have a look. Which of the two of us is the most successful here? And that was quite a defining point, I think, for me in how I developed my overall investment philosophy or how I thought about markets. There's, you can do a bit of trading. Sometimes it's exciting to, to do that, but it's on the side with a small part of your portfolio. Rather look at, um, at good stuff, and I'll get to that valuation, but or, or the, what's good stuff. Um, my little angel helped me there with what I think was my very first investment, and that was in Sassel shares. Um, I remember at a point in time, I got a bonus of 2,000 Rand, and uh, I went out and bought 50 Sassel shares at, at 40 Rand. And I just kept them there. I didn't do any. I still have those shares to this day. Um, you know, <laughs> maybe that's not a good thing anymore. But, uh, you know, over time, that idea was also reinforced by my father-in-law, who also liked to dabble in the markets um, and have, he had his own investment portfolio. But he, he loved it that I was in the investment business and I was the guy who could always chat to about things. But he always reminded me about he bought Sassel, you know, on day one when they listed and it was one rand or two rand. I think they were one rand and they started trading at two rand or something like that. And, you know, he also just kept them over the years. And when he passed, you know, we actually had to sell them out of the portfolio eventually. Yeah, I think one of the benefits of being a long-term investor, especially if when you invest directly into equities, is the dividend yield. Because a company like Sassel has, uh, since it started, the past few years may, may be mm-hmm. an anomaly for, for uh, reasons we're not going to go into. But have you calculated what your dividend yield is today based on what the dividend is, what's being paid, say, last year, based on the actual investment amount you put in yeah, uh, no, it 30 years be. ago. <laughs> I haven't done that exercise, but um, you know, if you could think about uh, even the cost price uh, in, in a year, you were in later years, you were earning a dividend that was equivalent to what you paid for the share uh, virtually. And you got that multiple times and continues to, to pay. The company as well has come into its own troubles, mm. as we know, and the world's moved on and it's becoming more greener. And sometimes management, if you hold it for decades, management changes and it's not always the, you know, the same people that you invested in, in in that company. That's why you have to keep looking at it and investigating that it's still still good for fit for purpose. Yeah, the longer you own a share, the more cycles there will be. And uh, it will be interesting to see what Sassel does over the next few years because it definitely needs to refocus and restructure the business uh, in a greener economy. But that brings me to the point. Uh, many people buy a share and for, the, for the long term and it performs really, really well. Should you look at a possibility of exiting that share uh, to take a profit and maybe invest it in something else. Uh, How do you think about that decision? When to get out after a good performance? That's why I think you do need to continue to evaluate whether the the company remains a good investment. 
it's not the case that if you've got a, a say a one year target price today and it reaches that price tomorrow, they're necessarily going to sell that for myself or or for the investments for our clients. Uh, we buy these shares now. I'm talking from a investment manager point of view for a much longer time horizon. And I'm thinking now when we look at shares, we want to hold them for 10 years uh, plus, uh, you know, that kind of time frame. Does it always happen? Do you, although the investment Sassfin make, uh, do, you th- do you hold it for 10 years or how, how often do you deviate from that strategy? Look, there was, you know, sometimes shares uh, just become really, really, really expensive uh, on a valuation point of view, and, and you kind of feel compelled to do a little something. We did that. We cut back on NVIDIA, and that was the wrong when, thing. When did you cut back on NVIDIA? Look, it had grown quite chunky in the portfolio, and we cut it down uh, at about 400 Rand, and now it's, you know, 600 or whatever. So that might not be the best example uh, of doing it, but it was a, a risk management tool in the overall portfolio. When, uh, when the share just gets too big, uh, in a portfolio, um, you want to do it more from that point of view than uh, than maybe for the individual merits of the, of the share itself. Mm-hmm. I, again, uh, you know, there is merit in being concentrated. I think in, in the portfolio, not having hundreds of shares and diluting the performance of all of your shares. But I, I think the key point is you don't need to sell everything when you decide to reduce your exposure because sometimes if a share becomes 20, 25, 30% of a portfolio, it presents an inherent risk. So you can trim it down and invest it uh, somewhere else. And uh, yes, you can make mistakes. You know, in 2020 hindsight, all the mistakes are very, very clear. Um, but that is a an interesting strategy to follow. And it's one you n- really need to, to craft to perfection. I don't know if that is possible, but how do you, how much do you actually trim it down when, when it has uh, performed really well? You know, if I think about our global equity portfolio, there's uh, there's about 24 shares in there at the moment, uh, and when they start getting six, seven percent, we sort of trim them back to maybe five percent or or so, um, and that's that's maybe a small tactical move, and and we don't do that a lot, because we are looking at shares, we're looking at companies that um, firstly have a great track record. Uh, they've got a great return on capital, so they are the capital that they have got. They are providing good returns on the income is there, and they reinvest into the business. So over the longer term, you get that compounding of someone that's reinvests in the business, keeps growing. So you've got to have that history for a start, and you, as an analyst, got to have the expectation that that's going to continue in, into the future over the longer term. So we want those those kinds of companies. Those are the ones we look for uh, that fit a kind of growth mold uh, and uh, and a quality mold. And those ones you can keep for a long time, but maybe you just tweak the, the weighting in an overall portfolio from time to time. Let's talk about shares that underperform. Uh, say you've done your analysis, you've uh, spoken to many people, listened to the angel on your shoulder, and you invest in a company and it just does not perform. Uh, it performs poorly. You've got the 10-year investment horizon uh, at what stage would you cut your losses? Uh, I think firstly, it, it's not a shame <laughs> no. to, to, to sell something that's gone down and, and doesn't and hasn't played out the way you thought it would. Sometimes there's other circumstances that come to play that one could just never imagine those kind of black swan events or whatever they may be. 
in my personal portfolio, uh, I once bought Sappy. I remember at 117 rand, um, and you know it got it started falling more and more, <laughs> and eventually I thought this uh, this is uh, I got out. I think maybe it was 90 rand or something, but it just kept falling into the teens even. So uh, that made me think that you know maybe sometimes you have to. It, it makes sense to to sell to sell the share a share uh, for for a reason. Um, but that's, you know, a lot of traders have that mentality of a, uh, a, you know, stop loss. You know, if it goes down 10%, that's not how I think of it from an investment point, point of view. I think you've got to just look, reassess whether this is still an investment you want to be in. Is it just a temporary blip? Are there things that are just clouding over the issues just in the short term? You know, companies like Apple, they go through these patches of cloudiness and China doesn't want their people to use the iPhone anymore and then the market gets a little taken aback and uh, you know the share slumps for a bit but then they come out with the results again and uh, you know they've managed to sell iPhones somewhere else to overcome the slowdown in China and hey look we've got these fancy goggles and uh, you know things move along so yep. you've got to see what's just cloud and noise um, apart from something that's maybe structurally gone wrong now with the company. Yeah, I think a company like Apple redefined itself with the iPhone. They were nearly bankrupt before they launched the iPhone, and, and look at it now. You know, one of the biggest companies in the world. Uh, I've spoken to many investment professionals on this podcast, and there is a feeling that a, a hit-miss ratio of six out of ten uh, is, uh, or six to four, is a benchmark. Six winners for every four losers. Do you agree with that ratio? I think it is, uh, yeah, it, it is probably, firstly, you want to have more winners than losers. So that is a probably a fair number. It's what you do with those four um, as well when they're falling or, or not fit for investment anymore. Whether you hold them on for too long or you get out of them at a, at a particular time it depends on your overall success then in, in out of your 10 stocks. Um, I suppose. But yeah. And you want those six shares, the, the six winners to totally outperform the losers. And that's where you actually make your, your alpha or your, your yield. Yeah, very much so. And I think, you know, six out of 10 is, is fair. Maybe you'd want to stretch that to stretch it <laughs> to seven. You know, if you're looking at those longer term, longer term, you've done that homework. You prepare to stay there for 10 years. Great track record. Looks great going forward. Um, and the success will be defined over the longer term. It's not, uh, you, you don't always know in year one or year two uh, if it's a six uh, or a four. Yeah, absolutely. It won't be constant. That's a good point. Let's talk about r retail investments from young professionals who enter the market. So what would your advice be? yourself when you stepped onto the stockbroking floor what did you say 1990 uh, what advice would you give yourself um, to maybe try and ensure that your investments at that stage were better I think at that point you, know, you get excited you want to be in the market and uh, as I said I went for McAdams Bakery Supplies and, and Isco and uh, you know a couple of shares and you go by hearsay and uh, you like the individual names and they've got stories. Uh, and I think longer term, I love being in individual shares. Um, but uh, if I talk to my younger self, I would have said, you know, in those early days, instead of buying the bakery supplies or Toco, I think there was a sh car. Sweets from spot. heaven. Yeah, uh, those kinds of things. Oh. 
maybe just invest in the index at that stage if you've got a couple but of hundred. But you have rand. invested in the index at that stage. Sure, I've I think Satrix Forty only launched in two thousand. I can't remember mm. to be honest, but but that might be a fair comment. But maybe to investors today, young investors today, yeah. you know, rather try and build up your portfolio from a growing market uh, in in that way. And there are so many options these days as well. And I'd say, apart from just buying a, a Satrix Forty or a ETF that follows the local market, look at the offshore ones as well that are listed locally. That I would have definitely said, get into that as soon as possible. You know, when you're younger, you don't think about expatriating rands into dollars and all of that. But you could buy a local ETF in rands that tracks the S&P 500 or the global markets. And that, you know, when those markets go up, you benefit. And when the rand depreciates, you benefit um, as well. So, uh, yeah, there are many of those, uh, you know, index tracker funds uh, of international stock markets and countries which you can invest in in rands. The MSCI um, S&P 500 is one. Um, I invested for my kids in that fund for many, many years, and it's performed phenomenally, especially if you take the depreciation of the rand into account. Lastly, let's talk about your best investment ever. Which investments you have made with money you've earned, that's important, which investment are you the proudest of? Which one has made the most money? Having worked at ABSA for 15 years, I did manage to earn a few ABSA shares in my day. Before that, I actually bought, it might have been 100 ABSA shares or, or something at 10 Rand. And, and those have done well as the years go on. The share itself might not always run away, uh, but it has grown over, you know, over the decades. But it pays a fantastic dividend. And that's always nice to see on your statement that uh, when they pay dividends um, every half year. But I think the best investment I ever made was actually for my wife's portfolio. At the time, we had a little portfolio for her. And Richmond came out with a, a trading update, call it a profit warning even, uh, in those days. And uh, the share went, this is going back some, I think to early 2000s, from 13 Rand, it traded down to 9 Rand. And I said, Richmond is a great company. Uh, this is a fantastic opportunity we're buying it on the day of the profit warning. It still went down further, I think, to eight rand fifty or eight rand, or maybe even a bit lower than that. But we just stuck with it, you know. And then it had its splits and all kinds of things, and I think that has been a fantastic investment. And actually, what is the for any, price now, well, well, you, you split well we had yeah. the mm. we had them now right. the the AD, we were trading the depository receipts here, and those were now merged into one. So now it's oh, I can't remember. It's, in the thousands. Yeah, yeah. And Raynet was spun out of it, Remgro as well? Yes. No, so you've you've done very, very well. No, absolutely. I also, you know, sometimes you also get a little bit lucky. I remember buying De Beers and then they had a takeout quite shortly after that. And, you know, you got a bit of a premium. But that's just a bit of luck. It's not um, anything more than that. Before we get to your worst investment ever, you, you referred to dividends. Do you reinvest dividends or you take the cash and take the family to... For a fantastic dinner. No, I've stuck with my principle that in my stockbroking account or in my, my investment account, whatever's generated in there stays in there. Sometimes the cash pile grows up, builds too much over time, and uh, you're actually a bit neglectful and you should be reinvesting into the shares, but it all stays in there. So at least you're earning interest if, <laughs> if you're not. Uh, but um, 
yeah, definitely reinvestment is the key, uh, I think. Yeah, I think that compounding is uh, in the long term can be very, very significant. Let's talk about your biggest dog you've ever bought. One you don't really want to talk about, but uh, tell us uh, which one you think you may have gotten really wrong. I think there were a couple, and I can't maybe think of all the names, but uh, you know, sometimes when you work so close to the coalface and uh, we're working at a stockbroking firm, there was the 2007 listings boom. And uh, there were so many new companies coming in and uh, you'd go and listen to their stories and they would sound appealing. I remember Interwaste was one. It's not listed anymore. There were a couple that, uh, yeah, I did. I took a small interest in them, but some of them came to naught, actually failed and you, and you got nothing back. So there were a few of those in 2007, and, and uh, maybe that holding on strategy didn't work for, for that, but maybe it was also just, I didn't think about it because it was, you know, that was fairly small. But uh, that was probably a time when I just thought, you know, you don't need to go chasing all of these little bits of excitement. On the other hand, one of the, the listings in Afrimat has done extremely well. I think it was also sort of a 2007 listing stock. Um, so that's, you know, converse story there. So I've still got Afrimat and uh, and some of those shares have come to, to naught as yeah, well. It's performed well. Greg, thank you so much for coming in today and for sharing your insights. No, thanks very much. It was great having a chat. Thank you. That was Greg Pfeiffer. He's the Chief Investment Strategist at Sasfin Wealth. Show me the money. That was the Money Web. Be a better investor podcast with Rake for Kneecap. Thanks for listening. Catch up and listen to all the MoneyWeb podcasts on moneyweb.co.za or the app. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.